So today, I, I want to just begin uh, with three scenarios. So one, someone bursts into the room. Uh, we can just pretend it's church. It's little, let's pretend you're like in your neighborhood restaurant or neighborhood pub or coffee shop. And someone just bursts into the room and goes, I got great news. I got great news. And you're like, oh my gosh, crazy pants, right? Depending on where you are in the city, you're like, this is totally normal. Uh, or if you're somewhere else in a more like safe and secluded place, you're freaking out and calling the police. And you have to ask the next question is why and what on earth would propel this person to charge into a coffee shop, to charge into the bar and just go, I've got great news. Now, if it's a sporting event, like for instance yesterday, or if you've ever um, traveled pretty, pretty much anywhere overseas uh, and you've been in and around a, a pub when a, a football or soccer match is going on, um, you know, anyone been to like England or Ireland when, when, a, when a big game was won, right? Or maybe it's rugby or something like that. It's like mayhem. Like you think Foxborough when everyone like screams at the Patriots, all the artists again are checking out like, why do you get so excited about that? Uh, kidding. It's an awful stereotype. Um, it's amazing the reaction that happens. And so if you've ever been around like a rivalry, right, maybe it was in high school and you had some high school team and this guy charging in going, I have amazing news. And it's some sort of really deep community. Like, the, like our high school, our team finally beat our rivals that we are under. Or maybe it's like the ALS championship and the Boston Red Sox have crushed the Yankees, right? Boo. Oh, there's a lot of New Jersey, New York folk here. That's right. Get out. And just like, yes, the Red Sox have won, right? Or even yesterday, the Patriots-Ravens. It's a pretty epic, like, battle that has happened between those two teams. An event has happened, and, and there's some sort of cause of, like, dude, everything is going to be different this next week. Now, with the sporting event, it's kind of a shorter amount of time. But, like, for a lot of people, it's like, man, this, there's hope. There's hope for my team, for my region. Okay, two, somebody charges in and goes, there's, like, like you guys, there's such good news. You've got to hear this. And people turn and they ask, and, and they find out, um, the, the man begins to explain that his daughter has been sick, like terminally, or what they thought was terminally ill, and they just discovered a cure. And so there's a long road ahead of healing, but they realize that there's actually hope at the end, that they just discovered a cure, and this dad just jumps out of the car and barges into the coffee shop and just has to tell somebody about this thing that happened, how it's, like, where it's going to go, and, and how it changes, like, a posture of, of basically um, uh, kind of giving up to, to a posture of, of hope. Or, or maybe... Um, yeah, imagine Providence in even worse economic shape than it kind of is now. Like really, really rough shape. Like Great Depression type shape. Or, or, or a town that's just like on, its, like on its deathbed when it comes to its economy. Detroit maybe. And, and, you have, and you're sitting in a coffee shop and someone jump, charges in and says, that skyscraper in the middle of our city that's abandoned, like there, there's, an there's a company going in and they're going to employ thousands. And even though that doesn't guarantee that everyone's going to get a job and there's still an employment and so much to get hashed out, but there's such hope that why would they come here? Economic recovery must be on the horizon. There's something that happened and it's spoken into a context of, of what's already happening now. And it's actually changed the temperature in the room. It's changed the set of expectations for something to qualify as good news, I would humbly submit to you that one, it has to be an announcement of an event that actually happened. It's sort of obvious. Like if something's good news, 
It needs to be like something that happened. Two, a larger context, a backstory within which this whole thing makes sense. So someone just charging in and going, they found a cure for blank. You might intuitively go, oh, that's going to help a lot of people. But you don't know the backstory. The backstory is this guy actually has a child, a daughter, who's been in the hospital for the last six months. You don't, we don't know that. Someone charges in and goes, there's going to be all these jobs. You might go, okay, that's, that's cool. But if you didn't know that there was massive unemployment and the city was on like its last leg, like it changes the perspective. So good news, there needs to be a larger context, a backstory, which with which this good news makes sense. Three, a sudden unveiling of a new future that lies ahead. So, so there's the, the image of, oh, how is this thing actually going to change? And then four, a transformation of the present moment sitting between the event that has happened and the further event that will therefore happen. This, I humbly submit to you, is how good news happens. In each one of these stories, in each one of these pictures, however sloppy the analogy, you get a glimpse. You get a glimpse of the because of the context, this thing that happened gives hope for an incredible future. And it changes, even though that future is not here yet, it changes how we look at our lives now. This, just in general, is how good news happens. To use another example, and I want you to, if you can, for those of you who know, know the story of Jesus a bit, those of you who have an idea of what the gospel or the good news is how the, the Christian story, how we, we talk about um, uh, what, what God has done for us and done for creation. I want you to keep in mind as I go through these details. Because this, this story I'm going to tell is something that actually happened. Flashbacks to, was it, 10th grade history. Uh, two, it happened around the time that we know Jesus existed. And three, uh, it speaks loudly to how we are to understand this good news that um, the, the, the Christian worldview, the way of Jesus, uh, claims um, has happened. That is good news. So, uh, you guys ready? History lesson? It's going to be awesome. The world of the early Roman Empire, first century, um, there's the, the, this rise of the first real Roman Empire. Julius Caesar, perhaps the best known Roman of all, Anyone remember Julius Caesar, history class, inventor of a salad, great haircut? The reason, uh, he was actually never technically the official emperor, is he was assassinated in March of 44 BC. For those of you familiar with Shakespeare, uh, he has documented this interestingly and well. Uh, he was precisely because his enemies didn't want anybody to be the sole ruler. No one wanted one guy to rule everything, so he's assassinated. Um, so political violence plunges this world, this Roman Empire that ruled from England to India into unbelievable civil war. Civil war focuses initially on the struggle between those who had killed Julius Caesar and those who wanted to avenge his death. So for, for just the purpose of the story and simplification, Caesar, Caesar's adopted son, so the guy who was murdered, the guy who was about to take power, an heir, a man named Octavian. Everyone say Octavian. He teamed up with Mark Antony. Say Mark Antony. And they wrote great Latin hits together. Um, bad show. <laughs> trying to get everybody. Sports, bad pop music. Just trying to clear that. Uh, so Mark Antony had been Caesar's friend. So these two team up. 
Uh, but the allegiance is incredibly short-lived. So once these two, they team up together, they were like, Julius Caesar died. That's not good. Let's do this. They go, they hunt down uh, the people who had killed Julius Caesar. And then as soon as that happens, they actually end up becoming rivals for ultimate power. So these two that had teamed up, uh, you know, who knows how politically motivated even that was. Uh, there wasn't going to be two emperors. And so they split up and the civil war begins to happen. Antony traveled around what we know now call the Middle East, drumming up massive support. He was kind of the favored, if there was a, a favored um, victor. And Octavian, though completely less experienced, doesn't kind of sit down and give up on the struggle. There's a crucial battle that takes place September 2nd of 31 BC off the coast of Actium in the western Greece. And Octavian, the underdog, wins. His navy wins. Anthony fled, fle- flees to Egypt with Cleopatra at his side. And they both uh, pull a Romeo and Juliet and end their lives. Now, Suppose you've been living in Rome during this period, during 13 years of civil war, an absolutely terrible time, and even though the fighting was taking place a long way off, right, if you're in England, and the fighting's happening down near Iraq, near Egypt, um, you're not experiencing this day to day, but there's rumors and factions and threats, political jockeying for position, everyone will be waiting anxiously for the news of what happened. And if you had been a friend of the Caesar family, and if Octavian won, it would simply, it would be good news for you. That's who you're rooting for. If Antony won, it'd be bad news for you, and you might have to leave town in a hurry. So at last, there's all this angst, what's happening on the battlefront? This changes how we view peace, right? No one knows who to trust. There is no central leadership. Um, And we find out, and this is literally how it was announced in our history books, good news, Octavian Caesar has won the great victory. He is now master of the whole Roman world. This is good news about something that had just happened. The backstory of the civil war and all of this turmoil and infighting and violence had come to an end. Peace was here. The word good news became a regular slogan for announcing to the world that Octavian, soon to be called Caesar Augustus, by which he is now more usually known, had brought peace, literally these words are used, justice and prosperity to the world. The good news, the gospel of Caesar was a regular slogan offered in real time and in history. Now Octavian, having won the battle, would be coming back to Rome. But he has to kind of consolidate victory. For those of you who know World War II history at all, right, D-Day. What happens on D-Day? Right, Normandy, the beach is stormed. It's a pivotal event. Everybody looks back in history and goes, when was World War II won? When were the Germans kind of defeated? Well, D-Day, that was really the day. That was the day that the whole war turned on a dime. There was a sense of, yeah, we're not going back now. But there was still so much fighting, so many lives lost, and so much to implement what essentially was the victory at hand. And much more accurate would have been what's happening here, where victory was won, like actually, it'd be like if Hitler had actually died on D-Day, like it's over. But there was still so much fighting. It would take two years, you still with me? Two years for Octavian to return home to the capital where he proclaimed that he had brought peace to the whole world. So this happens, somebody herald charges into your town, you hear Octavian is emperor, he won, he's going to bring peace and prosperity 
It's going to be incredible. Yet there's still two years before this guy actually shows back up because he has now have to implement this victory. He's got to mop up what's happening in Egypt because it's a really strategic place. There's still strongholds. The enemy, it's not like everyone got on the phone like, hey, Antony went down. Let's pack it up. Like a lot of people didn't know like what was happening. And there were battles that were fought in a way in vain. During the two years, the city was poised between the news about something that had happened, this decisive victory, and the expectation of something that would soon happen, his return, his organizing of power, and peace and prosperity for the Roman people. This is what news does. It creates a new period of time, and during that time, people in Rome would know what was coming. For the moment... The city would be living between the event that had just happened and Octavian returning home and putting everything back together. And what's interesting is if you weren't a supporter of Octavian, you would think, okay, like I got to get out of here. This is not a good scenario. I did not go with the right side. But we even have an interesting story. And these are, again, the details. I'm not just telling you for fun. I'm telling you because if you can, just kind of hold these tight. Because it will shed an unbelievable light. In fact, the lights on your dashboard might already be going off. So Herod, who is one of the guys who was actually not with Octavian, not a buddy of Octavian, was rooting for the other side. Octavian wins. He is like the, the, one of the, uh, the kings of a particular region. And so we find out, he finds out that this has happened. So he should probably flee because he's especially a guy in power who rooting for the other side. He should get out of there, right? Like follow Cleopatra to Egypt, get out. Actually, he goes back and he says, hey, don't think about who I supported. Think about how faithful I was. I was a faithful friend. I was a faithful friend to Mark Antony. And now, Octavian, I want to give my allegiance to you. I want to give my allegiance to you. And Octavian, in his mercy, says, all right, all right. And even in a moment where you would think violence would become him and vengeance would become him, actually, it turns. It turns. Good news creates a new situation and calls for new decisions. Roman emperors regularly used the words good news to describe both what they had already achieved and what life would now be like as a consequence. Let me say that again. Roman emperors used the words good news to describe both what they had already achieved and what life would now be like as a consequence. Something had happened because of which everything was now different. Something would happen that would complete their initial victory, like Octavian returning, and as a result, the present moment was new and different. This good news transformed people's lives. It gave people hope. It gave people life. So when Roman heralds, hold on to that word heralds, came into a city announcing that a new emperor had been enthroned, they didn't mean, stay with me, they didn't mean here is a new sort of imperial experience and you might like to see if it suits you. They didn't come into a city and go, so that we, there's a new emperor. If you want to maybe, maybe fall underneath this guy, like try it out. It's an interesting experience. Could be cool. Maybe not. 
No, right? It's, it's, yeah. They meant Tiberius or Claudius or Nero, whoever was lord of the world, which is how these Caesars referred to them. They must have all been very short men because they all have massive egos. You are the lucky recipients of this good news. He demands your loyalty, your allegiance, and of course your taxes. This is how Roman good news worked. This happened. You can live in light of the fact that this has happened, like this is what's real, or not, but not is not the greatest option. This is how Roman good news works. When the early Christians, the early followers of Jesus used this language, they used it in a similar way. There's, I think I counted 35, depending on how you count it, different places where just in the New Testament, right, the, uh, after Jesus has come on the scene, whether it's Jesus using it or the first people of the church using this language of the good news, the good news, the gospel, the good news, the good news over and over again. Acts 5.42, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching, this is the church, and proclaiming the good news, the gospel is the, the Greek word, that Jesus is Messiah. Acts 10, 36. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. By the way, Jesus, like Christ, is not Jesus' last name. It's not like Jesus H. Christ. A lot of people think that. It's okay if for your whole life you've thought that. Christ is not a last name. It is actually a title, and we'll get to that in a minute. Matthew 9, 35, Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. So a new way, a new thing that was happening and healing every sickness and disease. Christianity is, the way of Jesus is, when you boil everything down, simply good news. It's the news that something has happened and as a result of which the world is a different place. It's actually not, that's not a lot of things. All sorts of fascinating, like, like an understanding of morals and how we're to live and a really logical or, or, or semi-logical worldview of how we're to like engage the world and what life looks like or something that can change the inner parts of who we are or something that compels us to be about justice. It's not just a moral system to, advice, to, to adopt and it's not advice. So often, I, and I know many others, have treated the way of Jesus as sort of advice on a way to live. And this has been pivotal for me as someone who's studied the Bible for kind of a long time. When, it, when, the, when the lights came on of like, wait, wait, this isn't just like some stuff to adopt. It's not just, a, it's actually just news about something that happened that apparently transforms everything. It, it, it shapes Everything. It is before it is anything else, good news. If you mention the gospel today, most people are inclined to talk about a piece of advice, a new kind of spirituality, a Jesus-based morality for you. For others, it's about taking up an, like, an option for your future. Like, I don't want to, like, it's like a retirement plan. Like, I'm going to say these words just as, like, backup. Maybe I'll go down to, like, the... the the temple down the road and the mosque and just like cover my bases. It's like, this seems right. I believe in Jesus. I'm going to go to heaven when I die. Sweet. It's like this sort of like taking out like a retirement plan. That ends up becoming like what the gospel like gets boiled down to. Some people, I mean, literally you hear preachers like, if like today you do not 
Like that becomes like the central message. The gospel is the good news that Jesus has created an escape hatch. And only few of you will actually hear. And then you won't go to hell. Hallelujah. I humbly submit to you that that's actually not the gospel even a little bit. There's elements that are, are true. God provides a future of heaven. God saves us in some mysterious way from like the coming wrath of judgment. Oh, that's so true. That's an element of it. But when you actually boil down, okay, let's look at the text, like just be biblical instead of just adopting a 19th century philosophy. And we look through good news, good news, good news. It's a declaration of something that has happened. That's all it is. And, and that actually has massive ramifications as we think about what it means for us to be a church. When Paul told his good news, he didn't mean for them to say, well, that's interesting. I'll see if that's going to suit me or not. He wasn't inviting them to try on a new way of thinking. Paul wasn't inviting them to try on a new way of living that will enable them to live differently. That's true. That happens. But that was not Paul's initial invitation. He was telling them that something had happened which had changed the world and that the world was now a different place, and he was inviting them to be a part of a new and different reality. He was telling them about an event that would cause them to adjust their entire lives in order to come in line with how things are. He's saying, Jesus came to show us how things are, how life is at its most raw and real and true, and the fact is, is what God has done through Jesus has changed something, and you can choose to accept that and own that or not. So turn with me to 1 Timothy 2.7. We're kind of building here because I haven't even actually told you what the good news is. In 1 Timothy 2.7, actually don't worry about changing to it. It's really quick. 1 Timothy 2.7. For this purpose, this is Paul talking. Paul was one of the first uh, people that we read about who was proclaiming the good news of what God had done through Jesus. For this purpose, I was appointed a herald, and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. I was appointed a herald. He says he was a herald. Paul uses the word herald to talk about his own vocation of announcing the good news. Now, when Roman heralds came into a city announcing that a new emperor had been enthroned, they didn't mean, again, here is a new sort of imperial experience you might like to adopt if it suits you. They meant literally you have received by nothing of your own accord, by total grace. Like, look whether you want it or not, this is what's happened. So whether you want it or not is a violent overthrow and a new, like, person in charge. Or whether you want it or not, actually, God has, um, in his mercy, come to each one of us. Paul calls himself a herald he was not offering people kind of a new type of torch to see better in the dark. He was someone saying that the sun had risen and that if you would only open the curtains, you would see that you don't need torches anymore. The good news, he explains in a number of different ways, but the central elements are this in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 6. The Messiah died for our sins in accordance with the Bible he was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Bible. He was seen by Cephas, then by the 12. Then he was seen by over 500 brothers and sisters at once, 
most of whom are still with us. Jesus Christ, he was the Messiah. There's a backstory. These first people, these Jewish people were longing for God to put everything back together. And so for them to attach the word Christ to Jesus, the son of man, the Messiah, was to say, everything, literally everything we have hoped for is now here. And for the Jewish mind to put very quickly and simply was that God's going to put everything back together. He's going to restore everything. He's going to recall us. The Jewish people were called to be a blessing to the world. And they were to go out and to bless all nations. And we, they found themselves in captivity and in hurt and in a broken place. And then Jesus is announced as the Son of God, the Messiah, the one that they had waited for, the one that was going to put everything back together. Paul goes on in verses 20 to 28. He explains, just like Octavian and Augustus, that after his divisive victory over Antony, Jesus the Messiah... Jesus the Christ is already ruling, but for the moment has not completed the work of bringing everything under his control. It says in uh, 15, he has to go on ruling, you see, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Death is the last enemy to be destroyed, and when everything is put in order under him, the Son himself, Jesus, will be placed in proper order under the one who has placed everything in order under him so that God may be all in all. Paul spells out, he goes, there's something decisive that has happened. Jesus has died on the cross and he has risen again. He has lived the perfect life that he could not live. He's died in some mysterious way and taken on the sin and brokenness of all humanity, committed the ultimate act of love, the God of the universe being persecuted, and then announces, he says he's like the first fruits, like you wanna get a taste of what this is, how this is all gonna end, and he rises from the dead. And this whole time, there's an announcement of the good news is, of the kingdom is here. There's an inbreaking of heaven that all around you in all sorts of mysterious and miraculous ways, heaven is somehow inbreaking. And the beauty of God's sovereignty is that even in our hypocritical mess, even in our crusades, even in our messed up choices, even the time when Christianity has been like gripped by politics or power and totally taken off course, God says, even in the midst of all of that, I am reigning. And the more you accept and own the fact that I am here and I've shown you what life looks like and allow me to be your king, that in some way we can, in First Peter, it says, speed the coming of the kingdom. That we in some way play an actual part in everything that is good and true and beautiful in the world being put back together. And God would say, I want to use you. Join me in the renewal and the reconciliation of everything. The good news was a declaration that, like, hey, this thing happened Everything's different because actually the one who rules is Jesus. You don't have to worry. This has ramifications for like the church. This has ramifications for the fact that you struggle with chronic, chronic anxiety. And somewhere deep, deep down, you don't trust that God is on the throne. Somewhere where deep, deep down, we don't trust. Because this is what was happening. I could go through all sorts of examples of the way this hits us at home. It was so weird. And I still find it really strange but these first writers begin to talk about how this declaration of this thing that happened, this dude 2,000 years ago, what on earth does that have to do? Why is that good news for me now? His life, death, and resurrection, this thing that happened, why does that matter? And why does that change the temperature of the room for me? Why does that impact any way I would live? And all of these writers in the New Testament talk about how incredible 
just announcing the good news was, what would happen to people? It became something that actually changed how people were living. He says it was spoken, when it was spoken with power and wisdom, that the gospel was the power unto salvation. That, that somehow people began, this royal announcement uh, allowed people or forced people to, to kind of look at the way they were living in light of who Jesus is and they would repent. They would turn back to who they were created to be. They speak of how deeply they felt loved. The God of the universe has come and is reigning in some miraculous and mysterious and beautiful way. And everything because of that has actually changed. Suddenly these people know that, that there's a, a proper way to be human. Again, it wasn't good advice. I am not here as much as I would love to and could offer all sorts of persuasive things. Of here's, I want to convince you of why the good news is so good. My, the declaration that they would just get up and say is, look, you need to understand that your, your sins are not counted against you. That at the center of everything, there is new life breaking forth in the midst of this one, and that God reigns. And you can live as if God is not reigning. That's, that's yours. Right? Even God's wrath is described as letting us go. Letting us go to our own devices in Romans. It's like, just go, okay. I lay before you life and death. And you can choose to trust those. Paul would announce, as Timothy would announce, as these people would get up and just say, hey, this has happened. This happened and it changes everything. You have no more fear in death. Your identity is no longer wrapped up in whatever else. Your identity is in Jesus. And that, first and foremost, you are lavished with God's love. All these things we repeat week in and week out. Because we, in some way, right, we never get beyond just this statement. The good news. The good news that God has done this in real time in history. And it shapes everything. Good news creates a new situation. And it calls for new decisions. When people found this happening to them, they are welcomed into a new family. And within that family, they quickly learn how the gospel works out in practice. How to live in light of what has happened, is happening, and ultimately will happen as they join the mission together. We talk a lot about demonstrating and announcing the gospel demonstrating and announcing this good news, demonstrating as people who have no fear in death, demonstrating the fact that God has come near so we come near to the broken, demonstrating the good news that God is putting all things back together and announcing it. Jesus invites us to be these demonstrators and announcers for him. I wanna, I wanna land the plane today. Thanks for staying with me. You had no choice. Thanks for not all getting up and walking out. I want to land the plane with this passage that we have returned to time and time again and will time and time again. 2 Corinthians 5. For Christ's, again, just there, like stop. For Christ, for the Messiah, for this backstory and for this thing that's happened. The, the, the good news is encapsulated just in this two-word phrase. For Christ's love compels us. This is what the ruler of the world looks like, a God of love who meets us in mercy and grace. Because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died and he died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves but for the one who died for them. Recognizing like we are broken. Anyone see the movie Noah? For all the qualms that people may have with different things about it, what it so beautifully illustrated was just the sober-mindedness that you have to be such a fool 
such an idiot to not believe that sin is in our hearts and in the world. That's what that movie did so well. It said, look, just be honest with what's in here and what's around. It's not who you are, but it's there. And and, and this writer says, because of what Christ has done and died for us, the slate is wiped clean. Mercy, that even though you have contributed to so much broken in ways you don't even realize, I I have called you home and I want to put things back together. And it says, uh, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. There is no mere human, right? There's no mere human under the reign of Jesus. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone, in other words, trusts that Jesus is the Messiah, trusts this good news, the new creation has come, something new is happening, I know it in you. Something new is taking place. Your eyes are being opened to the wonder and beauty around you because there's a new king and a new world breaking forth. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God is reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, Christ's heralds, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He's like, God is not going to force your hand. Will you choose to acknowledge and wake up to what God has done? He has met you. Will you wake up? And then he calls for everyone else. Those of you who've been reconciled, those of you who are sitting here going, yeah, 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 yeah. It's good to be reminded. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, thanks. I got brunch. For all of us, just a reminder. He's literally called us to be heralds of the good news. As if God were making his appeal to the barista, as if God were making his appeal to our coworker down the hall, as if God were making his appeal to the hurting and homeless outside our doors, as if God was making his appeal to our family. You've been so reconciled. How could you not declare this thing? There's this thing that happened. I, I, I could sit here and, and, and try to convince you and give you 18 books about why this whole philosophy makes sense and all that, but all I know is that this happened then. It's happened to me now. What's going to happen at the end of God putting everything back together in a definitive way? Somehow that is beginning to take place and we can join not in a, our allegiance is not to our country. Our allegiance is not to celebrity culture. Our allegiance is not to fill in the blank pleasure, any kind of idol. Our allegiance is to the one who is making all things new. Making everything new. And how quickly we forget the implications of that. If this is the new reality, where do you stand in relation to it? Are we a community centered on the gospel, on the good news of what Jesus has done? Because we know the backstory is brokenness. Backstory is waiting for something definitive in history to happen, and it happened. And so we proclaim, because God, you've done this. Look at what's happened. I don't know. I can now live in light of the hope of where I know this whole thing is going and actually join you in implementing the victory. What joy, what beauty he would use a wretch like me. Amazing grace. My sins don't count against me. Oh my gosh. That doesn't cause us to want to sin more, be more like jerks and unloving, right? Oh my gosh, I have a father like that. How could I not? How could I not seek him? 
How can I not step under his rule and his reign? This has so many implications for our church. I have like four more pages to talk about all that, and I'm not going to do that. (laughs) Maybe we'll do a part two to drill down. But I think just on a basic level as we enter a time of communion, uh, communion, I want to to point out that for us, uh, for in the scriptures, the demonstrating and announcing of this good news though happening in individual conversations and things, is a communal affair. And so we invite each other. This isn't me inviting you. This is us inviting each other to go, I want to commit to be a part of a community where we work out the implications of this good news, where we work out together the implications of what God has done, the great depth of that, and though like right on the surface, oh my God, this relieves so much pain in my life. And so we want to invite you today. There's four reasons why we want to encourage you to partner with each other. One is a biblical reason. Christ is committed to the church. For the formal process, all this stuff isn't like necessary. It's not like some mandate. But there's something powerful about formal commitment that we commit to one another. Two, there's a cultural reason. It's an antidote to our society, as I mentioned before. We live in an age where very few want to be committed to anything, a job, a marriage, a mission. And this attitude has produced a generation, and I am a part of that, of just rampant consumers and disconnected people. Partnership is an unselfish decision where we come together and formally agree to invest in each other. Three, it's a practical reason. It defines who can be counted on. Last week, eight people I was able to call quickly and send texts to to help provide for someone uh, who was really, had recently become homeless in a really hard, just hard situation. Man, what an incredible thing. There are people that I knew I could count on, people who I knew I could just turn to. And as we begin to explore our gifts and organize better and, and do a better job being able to equip one another to go out and do whatever that looks like, whether it's that kind of situation or something else, we want to know who can really be counted on as we go forward. And lastly, it produces spiritual growth. The New Testament places a major emphasis on the need for Christians to be accountable to each other for spiritual growth. Personal experience tells us that we cannot be accountable when we're not committed. And so this process is just beautiful. It's not like accountability, like someone's looking over my shoulder. It's like, no, no, I, I really want to trust the rule and reign of God, and I recognize that my temptation is to not trust that God's on the throne. My temptation is to not live in light of what has been done, to not live in light of his love and his forgiveness and his purposes for me. It's my temptation is to move away from that constantly. And so we commit to one another so we can look out for one another. Like, hey, 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 that might not be uh, the best thing. Hey, let me, let's come alongside one another and study together and pray together and serve together and love together and eat together and party together and do life together. I'm whispering a lot. <laughs> so, you have cards you were given. Uh, these all, they say all in on them. You guys see them? There's two invitations that I, we have for you. One. If you would like to uh, explore, this isn't like the commitment. If you'd like to explore what it means to be all in, to be a partner in our community, would you put your name and your email address and your phone number on there? And would you, as we come up to communion, 
would you place it down? Um, didn't prepare for this one. Would you lay it down on the, on the front pew as you go out? As the front pew is totally empty, would you lay it, put it down there? Actually, there's two baskets coming forward. That'd be great. You could put them in the baskets. So take the cards and to place them in the baskets. And what will happen, just a logistical thing, is we're going to send you tomorrow. Um, here, I'll take them. We're going to send you, thanks, thanks. We're going to send you um, uh, an email with an electronic version of what it means to partner, like the details. Um, and then what we're going to do is on the 21st, I think there's a slide, that we're going to have a team night. And we're hoping that we can get 90%, 95% of you to actually be there. Um, it's a Wednesday night. And we want to gather everybody together. We'll go through some of that packet together. We'll worship together. We'll sing together. We'll outline the new year. Talk about really fun stuff like our budget. And just have a time to eat together. It's going to be great. We have some great details to announce about it. But it's going to be time together to like, you'll have read it. Then over two weeks, you'll come here. Any questions you have about what it means to partner. And then the following Sunday, we're going to invite all of you to kind of stand up those who have actually said, yeah, we're all in. So there's a second component to this. If, um, as you're reading, as we approach team night, as you're reading through this electronic version of what it means to partner with us, we want you to um, fill out, if you know already, yeah, I'm all in, or you read through it and you're like, I wanna be a part of this. One of the things we ask is that you would fill out a spiritual formation plan, which all that is, is pretty self-explanatory, is like, hey, what does it mean for us to like, like, care about how I'm growing with Christ? How, what are the ways that I'm becoming more like Jesus? And to kind of put together a little bit of a plan. This isn't like a test. This is simply for you to formally write it out. And we want to invite you to bring that plan, which you actually also have in your bulletin, to bring that plan on team night. We'll explain this all again in an email, but um, these logistics are really important um, because we're really excited uh, at team night and then that following Sunday where we invite everybody to stand to actually look around the room and go, hey, here's who's, here's who's in. Here's who really wants to be a part of this. And if you're here and you're brand new, like, please don't feel some weird, distorted pressure to fill this out. Or if you're like, I don't know, I have a lot of baggage with joining a church or any of that kind of stuff like that, totally, you have no idea how much I understand that. Like, I completely understand that. This is not about creating an in crowd and an out crowd. This is about simply providing an opportunity for those of us um, who are ready where we are now in our journey to go deeper in acknowledging the good news of what Jesus has done to be a part of a community again who are working out the implications of what God has done for us, of the grace of God. And this is our communal response to that. So I want to invite you to come forward to take the bread, a sign of Christ's body broken for us, and the juice, Christ's blood poured out for us. This ultimate act of love and healing, this central component of the gospel of Christ's body broken and blood poured out for the healing of the world, for the forgiveness of our sins. And as we take the bread and dip it in the wine, we'll be reminded of Christ's body broken and blood poured out. May we remember, as I often say, of what God has done for us, this act of love, and then that we, Paul calls the church the body of Christ, 
that we as a body are actually called to break ourselves open and pour ourselves out and consider the all in to be the symbol of that. So I'm gonna put the two baskets here if you'd like to throw the card in as you come forward. And lastly, I'm gonna invite us to just put our heads down. I do not do this very often, but I've just had this stirring since I woke up this morning that God has just prepared some people before I even uttered one word. Some people just wanna come home, wanna say, I, I wanna follow this Jesus. I don't even know where to begin. But I wanna just encourage you as I begin to pray. I'm just gonna invite you to just raise your hand for a moment and just say, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can put it right back down. This is, this is just a way for you to kind of just own the fact that yeah, this is a moment where I want to say yes. That I have a hard time understanding how something that happened then, this good news would transform everything now, yet I can't get away from what's happening in my heart right now. And we would be happy to help connect what's happening in your heart to your head. But might this be a moment where we just say, yeah, yeah, I, I want to follow Jesus. Let's pray, Lord. For my uh, friends who've come in the doors, for new people who've come in and are thoroughly freaked out, I just thank you for creating a space where people can explore uh, what so many before us, some of the great civil rights leaders and some of the great uh, servants of the world and of all humanity have 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 proclaimed that Jesus is Lord, is Messiah, is reigning. And so we join, for some of us, we want to join in this story. We want to, to trust. We want to say, yes, I, I believe. I want to turn from whatever is the idol in my life or whatever is the thing that I've propped up as king. And I want to declare that Jesus is Lord. And so on Jesus, I want to begin that journey. I want to say yes to, to the grace of God. Would you do that? One, two, three. Thank you, Jesus. You can put your hand down. I pray for these folks. Thank you for the unbelievable way you still work. Thank you, Lord, that you love them right where they are at, and you love them far too much to let them stay there. So for those who've raised their hand, just pray with me. Lord Jesus, I turn away from the person I, I have been, and I turn toward you. I trust, Lord, that you have died sins, you have risen again, that you are Lord. I accept and receive your grace.